You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Turn it on. Leave it on. I want my MTV. You want your MTV. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. Turn it on. Leave it on. America. See the music you want to see. I want my MTV. All right. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. Turn it on. Leave it on. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. 24 hours a day on cable TV. Too much. Yeah, too much. Never. 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 Too much is never enough.
Look at that mama, she got it sticking in the camera, man. And we could have some Andy's up there. What's that? Hawaiian noises. He's banging on the bundles like a chimpanzee. Oh, that ain't working. That's the way you do it. Get your money for nothing. Get your chicks for free. We got to install microwave oven. Custom kitchen delivery. That's the way you do it You play the guitar on the MTV That ain't working That's the way you do it Money for nothing And your chicks for free Money for nothing I think it might have taken me four years once MTV launched to get my MTV. So settle down, Sting. Everybody doesn't want their MTV. Or do they? Probably in 1985, everybody did want their MTV. I know I wanted mine, but it took me at least four or five years since it launched to get it. Because, you know, we only had three or four channels at the time. So what's going on? Part two is here, Hollywood. Last week, we premiered August 1st, 1981. This week, we jet ahead four years later to August 1st, 1985. We're covering the MTV era, so to speak. What's up there? I'm doing good. A lot of great feedback from last week. And uh, this should be a good one, too, because now I'm a year into the MTV here. And uh, I am getting glued to the boob tube the minute I come home from school and then getting upset at my mom because she wants to watch her Bollywood movies and she would kick me to the curb because we only had one TV and then I'd be upset. I'm like, we're so poor. We only got one TV and we don't have any way to record anything I want to watch. And then came a VCR later on in life and things were wonderful. I'll do you one better. I reduced myself so low that now I've taking babysitting gigs at houses that have MTV just so I can watch MTV. <laughs> I can imagine you, they're interviewing you and you're like, hold on, hold on. I have an interview question for you. Do you have MTV? <laughs> <laughs> That's about how it went. There wasn't a whole lot of interviewing back in 1985. They were like, are you available? I don't know. Do you have MTV? Why, yes, we do. And help yourself to everything in the refrigerator. I'll be there. <laughs> That kid ain't getting much supervision, but I'll be there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a fun one for sure to talk about some of this stuff. So with last week, we said the radio stations were pretty much driving the charts. Whatever was happening on FM radio in 1981 was deciding what was successful on the Billboard charts. Four years later... It's a completely different story. At this point, MTV now starts driving the Billboard Hot 100, Hot 200 charts, and the radio programmers are meeting with MTV executives every so often to find out 
what's happening so they can take it back to their radio stations and put them on their playlist. So it's an interesting time for sure in music. Some say it ruined music. Some say it didn't. I don't know how I feel about it, but it's definitely a new era. What do you think, Hollywood? Do you have anything else you want to add to this? Yeah, for me, the visual is important. I want to hear with my eyes and my ears. And most of the time, it has served me well. I'll give you some examples, right? I hear Y&T, I go see them live. Okay, top 10 band the rest of my life. My second show ever was Kiss. I'm like, okay, I'm in rest of my life. Like I was listening to stuff. I would see it on MTV. I'd see it live. Bam, make the three-way connection. I'm good. Rat was, we've talked about it. I liked it on video. I liked it on audio. I could never see them live because it kept canceling, right? So it's like, well, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to be connected to Rat. And then it also works some interesting ways. And I think I've told you this story before. We're on the Monsters of Rock cruise, the first one I went on. And uh, I stayed on the ship on a dock day because Lita had gotten on the ship late and I wanted to see Lita play live. And I hadn't seen Lita live in 20, 30 years probably. And so I watch and I'm like, wow, these songs are really bad, Lita. Like what is going on? So I thought maybe she was just having an off night. So I go back and listen to the records. I'm like, oh my God, this stuff is really bad. So I was just watching Lita. I wasn't actually listening to Lita in the eighties. So it worked against me every once in a while. I got to be honest. I'm not sure MTV did much for me other than put a face with the name because my musical tastes were still being driven by rock magazines. So because MTV wasn't going to play new wave of British heavy metal or, you know, this was pre Headbangers Ball and all of that stuff. Maybe later on with Headbangers Ball, it had that effect. But early on and even four years into it, about the only rock videos I can tell you that I remember from that time that helped my taste and I was already a fan was No One Like You by the Scorpions. I saw that video pretty often early on, but I was already a Scorpions fan. I already owned Blackout. And maybe they played Black and Blue Hold On to 18 at like 3 a.m. in the morning on a Saturday. I used to spend the night at a friend's house to see that whatever year that was. I don't remember exactly what year that album came out, but I do remember that. So I just don't know that it really drove my taste, but I still liked it, obviously, the visual of it. Yeah, the issue was is that they set out to be rock radio. They wanted really to do for rock music in 1981 what we're trying to do for rock music and podcasting in 2021, right? It's a dead format. People don't really listen, blah, blah, blah. Well, the issue was, is that they really went after mainstream rock. And as they get bigger, and again, coming back to, as we said on the first episode, have to be more inclusive now because it's a moneymaker. They're actually going away from rock into different genres because they have to and playing a bunch of, you know, Halloween and Grim Reaper and Helix and come on, that shit's not going to help. They got to Def Leppard and they got to Scorpions and they got to some of this, but those guys came to mainstream. That's what got them on there. Otherwise you weren't going to get a bunch of old Scorpion videos played unless they had Rocky and a Hurricane already in the chamber. Well, and the interesting thing that I found out of the documentaries and the books that I read was how much they had to fight initially with the U.S. record companies. Like the U.S. record companies wanted MTV to pay for the videos, first of all, and didn't have a lot of videos to offer. They weren't really on board. Initially, it was the U.K. artist that were kind of there from the beginning that said, here, take our videos, play our videos. 
were visual. I just found that to be interesting that, you know, the U.S. was fighting it all along. And I think U.S. did sort of the same thing with some of the streaming services when that first started up. So I don't know. <laughs> get get on board, U.S. <laughs> I don't know why the U.S. fights that kind of stuff. I think there's folks in boardrooms always wondering, like, who's winning? Like, who's making the money and why isn't it us? Right. Right. So because of the capitalist environment, it's always kind of like that. But, you know, by the time 85 rolls around, MTV's part of pop culture. Like, they're bringing pop culture to a kid in Nebraska. A kid in Nebraska doesn't know what London or New York or even Chicago or LA feels like. But now you watch MTV and it's all kind of coming to you. And these guys are basically influencing everything. You know, think about this was perfect for Madonna, Bon Jovi, Twisted Sister, George Michael. Help Culture Club. Even if you felt like a weirdo, Culture Club made you feel like you were accepted because you're on MTV all the time. It's amazing how four simple years and this thing just kind of snowballs into this unbelievably ridiculous, honestly, at times thing. I'm so happy that it happened in my childhood because it totally affected everything that was happening for me because this is the absolute bang zone of my teenage years and everybody that's about my age is influenced by a lot of genres that they like because you didn't have a choice on MTV because to get to the Ingve Momstein video that you wanted to see, you had to see Genesis and Madonna and Dexy's Midnight Runners <laughs> and some of the shit that was playing. And I know all of those songs because of that. Not only do you know him, but you've done the Cotton Eye Joe to uh, come on Eileen at some point in your life, unfortunately. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get too far into this, and I think it's a little too late for that, but we're going to dive into this. It's time for the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. So tonight's Crank It Up New Music Spotlight comes to us from two ladies that both on their own have amazing voices, Loren and Luhimo. Loren sings for a band called Smackdown, and Luhimo sings for Battle Beast. They came together for this project for who else? Frontiers Records, and they released an album called The Reckoning. I'm going to play you the first track off that record called Time to Kill the Night.
Somebody once told me if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say nothing. <laughs> but I'll go here. So not everything Frontiers does works. Serafino, I love you. Not everything works. When I heard it, I'm like, man, come on. This is a little too far out there when Symphonic, like this doesn't sound like Battle Beast or Smackbound. This is totally the symphonic metal that when our friends that aren't into that music, they hear those words, symphonic metal, this is what they're worried about, right? They're worried about either this, or it's got a bunch of cookie monster vocals that they can't handle or don't want to listen to. And it's just trying too hard. And I don't know if this is Anura and Netta's fault. I doubt it. My guess is they didn't write the stuff. Somebody else wrote it. I doubt it's Elizandro. This doesn't sound like Elizandro stuff, but maybe it is. I don't know, but not everything Frontiers does works. So, you know, it's meh. I'm sorry. There's a lot of Battle Beasts that I like, and there's even some songs on the Smackdown record that I like as well. I haven't honestly spent a ton of time with this new record, The Reckoning. I do like this tune that I played for you, the first one on the record, but I'm not a huge symphonic metal fan. I'm more guitar oriented. I don't need all the keyboards and I certainly don't need the operatic vocals. I think both of those singers are amazing singers. They do a really great job. I think Frontiers is getting to a place where they might be a little bit too stuck in their formulas and it's starting to become repetitive. I don't think Alejandro Del Vecchio had anything to do with this record. This isn't his style. So I don't know whether the two ladies wrote this stuff or whether they had outside writers, but I have a feeling that this record is going to probably sit in the same place for me. But again, I've heard a lot of people talk about this in the social post. A lot of people seem to dig this record. Check it out for yourself. It's called The Reckoning, and that tune was the first song on the record, and it's called Time to Kill the Night. So decide for yourself. And I will tell you, last but not least, two amazing voices. The musicianship is wonderful. It's the songwriting that just doesn't hit my ear right. Welcome to Radio City Music Hall and the MTV Video Music Awards, the second annual one. I'm the host tonight. My name is Eddie Murphy. For those of you who do not know it, I know I never saw this place with the lights on. It's a big spot. You know, I wasn't going to host this show. They came to me about six months ago said, Eddie host the MTV Awards, and I'm an actor, so my first reaction was, fuck MTV, you know, it was like, <laughs> it was like, I wasn't gonna do this, and then I did a music album that hasn't come out yet, and so now I'm here kissing MTV's ass, so, <laughs> like most of you, so. <laughs> so going on to the episode, we're at August 1st, 1985. I am 15 years old, about to start my junior year in high school. How old are you and what grade are you in? I am 18 and I have graduated high school and I am serving my first year in junior college at this point. Yeah, I'm still living in San Francisco. Where are you at at this point? I am still in my hometown in Florida. And what's important in my life at this point? Well... Hell, I'm about to start my junior year in high school. So it is girls, it is music, it is concerts, and it is ding-dong Twinkies and ho-hos. <laughs> that all sounds bad. It probably all is bad. And depending on how you hear that message, it's all bad. But I'm 15 years old, and that's what's important to me. Ditto for me. Girls, music, and so I still live at home. 
but now I'm starting to have to have some adult conversations, right? Music is so important in my life in 1985. When I went to junior college, I went as a music major. So studied classical guitar, studied piano, wanted to be a music teacher. The problem was, is I didn't have the talent for it. <laughs> That's a problem when you're in college for it. Luckily, I got a bunch of grants. And so I wasn't necessarily out of pocket, but it didn't take me long to figure out that I just wasn't cut out for junior college and for being a music major. I worked in the theater for a while and I learned a lot working in the theater. So this is sort of where I started to learn lighting and sound and what would become sort of my career down the road a little bit. And I ended up quitting college and going to work at a music store. So all of that sort of happened 85, 86. For MTV, if you want to give it a shot, uh, there's a biography on A&E called I Want My MTV. It's a great biography. You should check it out. But now since we're at 8185, Thriller has happened. They've already had the first MTV Video Music Awards with Madonna basically humping in her wedding dress every part of the stage. Um, they've invented the video bumper with, you know, the first one was Mick Jagger saying, I want my MTV. Second one was Pete Townsend saying, I want my MTV. And if you can get those two, you get everybody on the planet saying, I want my MTV. So these guys now are a major marketing money-making machine. And what they are doing is they are now controlling the charts. So getting to the Billboard Hot 100, sticking with just the rock songs, hard rock, rock. We're going to start with number 99, the Willie and Hand Jive. By George Thorogood and the Destroyers. This did not happen because of MTV. I can tell you that right now. This is the third single off of Maverick. That album went gold. This song actually peaked at number 63. This is a name recognition thing. Because this is a Johnny Otis song that was released in 58. And it peaked at number 9. It's got a good melody. Eric Clapton did it in 74. Peaked at number 26. This is one of those songs that's getting done over and over and over and over. And people can hear it every 10, 20 years. And it keeps hitting the chart. If Jester Timberlake did it today, it would hit the charts. That's the kind of song that it is. Number 91. Centerfield by John Fogarty. It had only been on the charts for 11 weeks. And it actually is on the way down because it peaked at number 44. So after John Fogarty leaves Credence in 72, he releases two solo albums. He's working on the third and it's going nowhere. So he just gets out of the music business for like nine years. 85, he shows back up with this album. It goes number one, sells double platinum. He gets three hits off of it. Old Man Down the Road, Rock and Roll Girls, and Centerfield. And all of a sudden, he's got a song that has been playing in baseball stadiums for the last 36 years. This is the only reason I even know who John Fogarty is, is because of this song. Number 88, It's On The Way Up, In and Out Of Love by Bon Jovi. Does this happen in 1981? I don't know, but it's happening in 1985, and this is the premiere week. So this is where it hit the chart right at the gate, and it only peaked at number 69. This is the second single off of his platinum-selling album, 7800 Degrees. By the way, if you don't know what 7800 Degrees is, it's when rock starts to melt, so this is technically American hot rock. Get it? Wow. But anyway, overall, I got to be honest, this album's kind of a little meh for me. I don't really think Bon Jovi's found their groove yet at this time. And this is probably my favorite song off this album. But after this album, they absolutely blow up, right? The next album is Diamond. At number 81, on the way down, we have Smuggler's Blues by Glenn Fry. 
It had peaked at number 12. It had been on the charts for 18 weeks at this point. Glenn Fry, rest in peace, sir, releases a second album four years after the Eagles break up. All Nighter spawns three singles, and Smuggler's Brews did better uh, versus the other two, which was Sexy Girl, which is a great song, and the All Nighter, which did okay. But it was the Heat Is On on Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack that really created his momentum into this album. So, And then this was on the Miami Vice soundtrack, so that didn't exactly hurt it either. And then at number 73, On the Way Up, Tonight Is You by Cheap Trick. This thing was only on the chart for two weeks so far, and it had peaked at number 44 later on. This is the first single off of their album, Standing on the Edge. And this is the first charting single they'd had in a few years. And here's a good example of this video was in heavy rotation that brought Cheap Trick back. Now, whether that's pay to play, I don't know exactly what got them in heavy rotation, but this was kind of the blueprint that every hair metal band used later on. It's just, if a hair metal band would get in heavy rotation, your song would go up the charts on the billboard. So uh, definitely worth it. But tonight is used by Cheap Trick. I want to get your takes on the song or which one you like best. You know what? I got to go with Centerfield, John Fogarty. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I don't need any hand job other than in Greece, the movie. Everything else can just go away. And I, I hate George Thorogood and the Destroyers. I'm sorry. I used to have a no George Thorogood on the radio rule in the vans when I was touring around the country. Bad to the bone came on. Flip. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I like I drink alone and one bourbon, one scotch, one beer. Those are my two favorite by him. Yeah. All right. Uh Centerfield, John Fogarty. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. You cannot go to a baseball game without hearing this song still today. And you know, we're talking about August 1st, 1985, so we're in the middle of the Major League Baseball season at this point in time. So Probably that didn't hurt the theme of the song along with MTV and anything else. In and Out of Love, love the video, love the song. I liked 7,800 Degrees. I probably liked it better than the first Bon Jovi record, honestly. So it was a steady increase for me. Uh, and that was the first tour that I saw them on as well. So that helped as well. Smuggler's Blues for Glenn Fry. That was also released around the same time that Glenn Fry was on Miami Vice. So the song was on the soundtrack. He was on Miami Vice doing his acting career. I like this song a lot. It's just a nice bluesy tune. Tonight It's You by Cheap Trick. Great song. Absolutely love this song. For me, I mean, just being honest, probably In and Out of Love is my favorite. It was at the time, if you'd asked me in 1985, I'd have told you the same thing.
getting back to the charts at number 66. So this one's an interesting story. Songs called Tough All Over by John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. And it was on the way down because it already peaked at number two. Now, John Cafferty hit from Eddie and the Cruisers in 83, right? So they had made their way in the movie. This song and this album was supposed to separate them away from the movie. Uh, that didn't work too good. So they're on Scotty's Brothers. Scotty Brothers re-releases the album and adds the voice of Eddie and the Cruisers. So that way the album would do better. In the end now, the band's still touring. They only got four studio albums. The last studio album they released was 1989. And yes, it was Eddie and the Cruisers part two, Eddie is alive or Eddie lives or something like that. It's like, <laughs> come on. Right. So it's like, you just got typecast right out of the gate and it's stuck there. At number 62, it's on the way up because it peaks at 55 a couple of weeks later, Summertime Girls by Y&T. So initially the song was on the live album, Open Fire as a studio track. It got re-released the same year on the next studio album, Down for the Count. Real Genius, the movie Val Kilmer comes out in August 85. The song was included in that. And boom, you have Y&T's highest charting single ever. The video is brutally funny because Manichetti has got these short shorts on and with that poodle hairdo, it's pretty embarrassing. And I'm a super Y&T fan, as you know, but this song would not even make my top 20 Y&T song list because it's good, but there's much better songs by Y&T. At number 59, you can barely call it rock. People Get Ready by Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart. It's on the way down because it had actually it peaked at number 48. Now, yeah, we're pushing the definition of rock here, but Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck, I mean, they're rock royalty. It's just that this song is not exactly a rock and tune. Rod Stewart's also one of the guys that the minute MTV started, he started putting videos out like crazy because he was a Brit and he knew that the visual mattered. And oh my God, can you even touch Rod Stewart in the eighties? Like how many hits did he have? The guy was a sex symbol and I think he was in his forties. Right? Like he was really older compared to some of the other guys that really get posters on the wall and stuff like that. And people were ooing all over Rod Stewart. This is actually a cover of the Impressions tune written by Curtis Mayfield. A bunch of people have covered this tune, but I really like what these guys did with it. And this song was the fourth single released off of Jeff Beck's album, Flash, and it was the only hit he had in the U.S. And number 47, On the Way Up, is going to end up peaking at number 40 a few weeks later, Lay It Down by Rat. I'm not the biggest Rat fan. And I just realized the other day they fucking canceled on me again because they were supposed to be on the kiss cruise. So I can't get rat to stop canceling on me. <laughs> but Steven Piercy says he doesn't cancel shows. Bullshit. He cancels shows. Anyway, this was the first single off of invasion of your privacy. MTV absolutely helped this song. It sure the hell was not Piercy's voice. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. I love the riff. I love the groove. I think the solo's great. Video's awesome. The little Steven that's in the video, like he is hilarious when he's rocking out. And by the way, Lay It Down is the last top 40 hit they had. And at number 43, it's on the way up because it ends up peaking at number one, Money for Nothing, Dire Straits. Between Sultans of Swing and Money for Nothing, I think this is the only place Dire Straits made any money. And this is the second single off of Brothers in Arms. It's also 9X Platinum, so if they re-release it, it would go Diamond. And the video totally made the song. And come on, you got Sting from the police saying, I want my MTV, I want my MTV. I remember when I first heard it, I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be on MTV forever. This is like a walking commercial. I remember seeing 1999 video the first time by Prince. I'm like, did he just write a song in a video that he's going to make money with 16 years from now? Like, that's amazing. 
right? So these guys, they were getting it and they were starting to play the game and Dire Straits did it well. So my favorite out of these, yes, I'm going to say it, lay it down by rat is my favorite out of these, but fuck rat for canceling on me again. How about you? (laughs) All right. So tough all over from John Cafferty and the Brown Beaver Band. Yes, I said it, the Brown Beaver Band, because the Beaver Brown Band makes no sense. It's the Brown Beaver Band, damn it. Beavers are brown. Thank you, Stephen, for the animal biology lesson. You are definitely not a zoologist. Beavers are awesome. The beaver has been used to represent industry, tradition, masculinity, and respectability. Beavers are not just brown. Some are black, red, blonde, and brunette. For those of you thinking dirty thoughts right now, Y'all need church. Now back to our show. (laughs) I've never even heard this song. The only brown beaver song I know is on the dark side. That's it. So I've never heard this song. I played it today. I was like, yeah, I never heard this song ever. I don't know what it is. Summertime Girls Y&T. Love it. But I'm with Sonny. It's probably not even in my top 20 of Y&T songs. But it's a great song. And yeah, that video... (laughs) That video is brutal. <laughs> I mean, you, you mentioned Menachetti's short shorts, but you forgot to talk about like the cornrow things that he's got hanging off the, the beads. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> what are you in Jamaica? <laughs> Come on. Okay. Anyway, People Get Ready by Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart is my all time favorite version of this song. Jeff Beck's guitar in this song is so great, along with Rod Stewart's vocals. I absolutely love this version of this song. Lay It Down by Rat. I dig the riff. Uh, it's such a great song. It's one of my favorite rat songs. I definitely love Lay It Down. And then Money for Nothing on Dire Straits. So I went and looked at Brothers in Arms today. The first three songs on that album, they're all three hits. Uh, Walk of Life, So Far Away, Money for Nothing. All three of those songs were huge hits. No wonder this album sold 9 million copies. It's crazy. All the rest of the songs on the album, don't know from Adam. But those first three songs on the album, if you if you put that on Spotify, I bet uh, the first three songs stream a shitload and all the rest are like 9,000, 1,000. <laughs> I'm going to check that because I figure Sultans of Swing would be up there too. That's from the prior record, right? Correct. Yeah, that's not on this album. Yeah, so the number one is Sultans of Swing at 636 million. Money for Nothing's at 265 million. Walk of Life's at 327. Brothers in Arms is at 175. Some song called Romeo and Juliet is at 152 million. Well, and so far away, it's 73 million. I don't know that song, Brothers in Arms. At least it's not ringing any bells. Anyway, it's a great song. I love it. I love the guitar. We used to use this song as a sound check for PA systems because of the keyboards and the drums at the beginning. Sounds so great. And then when the guitar comes in, it's really compressed. It just sounds awesome. My favorite song on this uh, list, though, out of those is easily Rats Lay It Down.
Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. All right, we'll take a quick break to mention the Growing Up Rock Loud Minority Facebook group. I've talked about it before. It's a private Facebook group in which we discuss subjects of the podcast. We discuss new music, concerts, books, movies, whatever is in the entertainment and whatever we want to talk about. It's a good group of people. There's not a bunch of poisonous comments, so you're free to comment on music you like or don't like. Uh, It's just done respectfully, and uh, so it works out well. You can also help out the podcast by going and leaving us a five-star review at Apple Podcast or at Podchaser. We always appreciate that as well. So help a brother out and go do that. Doesn't cost you anything, and we appreciate it. Now, back to our time machine, and we're jumping to 1985. So at number 39, on the way up, because it peaked out at number 16, we got Smoking in the Boys Room by Motley Crue. So Brownsville Station, who took it to number three in 1973, really this song, it does fit Motley. It fits the feel. Everybody was talking about Smoking in the Boys Room in high school. I remember that. And then Home Sweet Home obviously blew up. And it was actually Vince's idea to do the song, by the way. At number 30, on the way up, because it got to the top 10, is Invincible by Pat Benatar, my absolute favorite Pat Benatar song. It's the leading single off her sixth studio album, Seven the Hard Way, but it was actually released at a single a few months earlier for the movie, The Legend of Billie Jean with Helen Slater. So um, this song was already churning by the time the album released. At number 17, we got Heart with What About Love. They also peaked out at the top 10, so this song was on the way up. It's a lead single off the self-titled Heart, you know, the sisters say they don't like the sound very much because this era really, because it really takes them out of who they were trying to be as independent women. It sexified them. You know, it kind of made them this billboard loving pop duo, blah, blah, blah. This is the heart that I love. And uh, it's too bad that they felt that way. And all of that stuff's true. I'm not saying it's untrue, but songs like these will live with me the rest of my life. Seeing Nancy and Ann in the videos uh, with these type of songs is huge for me. And, you know, Jim Valance had a hand in writing this thing with a band called Toronto. Toronto broke up before it released and uh, they gave the song to Hart. And obviously it did well and it should be on every 80s compilation out there. This song should be on it. And then at number 15, and this one capped out at five later on, Summer of 69 by Brian Adams. It's his fourth single off that crazy good album, Reckless, with tons of hits on it. You know, Brian Adams, he's kind of got that James Dean type look. He was perfect for videos on MTV, kind of felt like a little bit of the cute bad boy, but playing his guitar. And, you know, he just kind of seemed cooler than everybody else. What's interesting is... In the summer of 69, Brian Adams is only nine years old. So he's <laughs> singing about when he's nine years old. But I guess the summer of 76 doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. <laughs> you got to do something. <laughs> but it's a great song. My favorite out of these is Hands Down, Invincible by Pat Benatar. What do you think? So, yeah, Smoking in the Boys Room, that video. I loved that video for that uh, song. I can't stand the song, but the video was cool. And 
remember, this is when the world gets the first sort of new look at Motley Crue, right? Before, it was all leather and chains and spikes, and now here comes Theater of Pain, and it's glam to the hilt. They started a brand new trend with this record and became a glam band, and I don't like the song, uh, but MTV definitely made this album successful because their image was perfect for MTV at the time. Invincible, like you said, Billy Jean, love this song, love Pat Benatar, not much else I can say about it. It's just a great tune. What About Love by Heart, also a classic, really showcases Anne's vocals, just it's a belter of a tune. Summer of 69, I don't know what it is about this song, but I don't get tired of this song. It doesn't matter how many times I hear it. I don't know what it is. I like the story that's being told. Even though I was young in 69, I still identify with the whole story of it. And it's just rock and roll enough to not offend me. It's not slow. It's kind of a fast-paced tune. I dig it. It's my favorite of these four, uh, is this Brian Adams' Summer of 69. I got my first real six-string Bought it the five and done Played it till my fingers bled Was it summer of 69?
So getting to the top 10, like we always do, when we looked at the 81 charts, we <laughs> sold Jesse's Girl as a rock tune. I guess it is a rock tune, but that's probably the closest we got to rock. Here, things change a little bit. It doesn't change with number 10, but it changes a little bit later. So at number 10, you got Who's Holding Donna Now by DeBarge. My guess is if they don't know who's holding Donna, nobody knows. I mean, who's supposed to know? I, I don't understand, but whatever. Uh, it was at number 10. At number nine, you got the power station with Get It On. And you got to say that's rock because this is written by Mark Bolin, released by T-Rex in 71, peaked at number 10 on the Billboard 171. Then this super group called the power station releases it 14 years later, and it does the same, basically number nine at this point. This was a second single and a reminder that this super group was super because Robert Palmer is hot, hot, hot coming off of Addicted to Love video. You got Andy Taylor and John Taylor from Duran Duran that were absolutely made for MTV and were posters all over this place. And then, you know, you got Tony Thompson from Chic, but you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> but with, <laughs> with Ro- <laughs> so, sorry, Tony, but with Robert and with, you know, both John and Andy, you're going to sell tons of records and that's exactly what they did. And they got rock credibility with this. So it was good. Number eight at his peak week, Sentimental Street by Night Ranger. So this is a lead single off their platinum album, Seven Wishes. At this point, Night Ranger is super hot because Midnight Madness had a bunch of hits and Sister Christian put them on the map. This was the last top 10 single Night Ranger had. I didn't really remember this video, but I remember Sister Christian video pretty good. (laughs) I remember that video pretty good. But uh, yeah, Night Ranger at number eight. Number seven, you could almost sell that this is rock. It was a number one song at one point, The Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News. They had some great videos and uh, they had some great songs in the 80s. Never Surrender by Corey Hart was at number six. Glory Days by Bruce Springsteen at number five. You could almost say that's rock. Uh, You Give Good Love by Whitney Houston at number four. Think about it. Dire Straits was in the top hundred and you got Sting with If You Love Somebody, Set Them Free at number three. So the minute people heard that, I want my MTV on money for nothing, it took Dire Straits to the stratosphere too, because Sting was hot at the time. And that song, it peaked at number three. Every Time You Go Away by Paul Young was at number two. That was a number one song at one point. By the way, if you didn't know that was written by Daryl Hall, that's why it's such a great song. And the number one song on August 1st, 1985 was Shout by Tears for Fears. It took literally forever because this thing got released on November 84. And for whatever reason, it got good in the UK and it took a while to get going to the US. But damn it, when it did, it went five times platinum and they had a couple of hits off of it. And that was the last time you heard of Tears for Fears because I don't think I know any other Tears of Fears song. And Nicole had this record, by the way. (laughs) So that's how popular they were. My favorite song about all this, I'm going to have to go with Every Time You Go Away. Because knowing that Daryl Hall wrote that song and the way Paul Young did it, damn, it's a damn good song. I know it's a ballad. Eat it. (laughs) (laughs) Pooney, you bastard. (laughs) Pooney, you ignorant slut. (laughs) DeBarge, who's holding Donna now? Never heard this song in my life. I know who. Oh, come on, really? No. Who's holding down? No. You never heard that? No. I listened to it today. I was like, I know who DeBarge is, but I do not recognize this song. I've never heard this song. I don't know what that is. (laughs) Get it on, Banger Gong, Power Station, great tune. Uh, The old Mark Bowling classic, just like Sonny said. I like that Power Station record. It has some good stuff on it. 
Sentimental Street by Night Ranger. Did you say this was the first single released off Seven Wishes? Uh, this was the lead single, yeah. Yeah, I don't necessarily remember this being the lead single, but to be honest, I can't tell you what other singles were on that record, but it's not a bad thing. I, I do like Seven Wishes, but it was definitely a little bit different album. I like Sentimental Street, but it's a ballad, so it is what it is. Power of Love, love it, love it. He had some great videos, just like you mentioned, uh, Want a New Drug, etc. Never Surrender, Corey Hart. I don't think he did that well with this. I mean, everybody still knows Corey Hart as the sunglasses at night guy, but Never Surrender's all right. I had heard that tune before, so it wasn't a surprise. Glory Days by Bruce Springsteen. I hated Bruce Springsteen, and I hated this album at the time all this happened. Now, in 2021, I actually like Glory Days, but back then, no, I hated all that stuff. You Give Good Love by Whitney Houston, that's another one. I never heard that song. I listened, wow. to, I listened to it today. I'm like, I don't know this song. Obviously, know who Whitney Houston is, and I know a bunch of her hits. And maybe this was one of her hits, but I don't recognize it. So I don't know what's up with that. But if you love somebody, set them free. I love it. Sting. I love this album. And it was a solo album. I guess it was probably his first solo record after he left the police, after police disbanded. And, you know, MTV, they sponsored the Synchronicity Tour, I think. Uh, whatever year that was, 83, 84, somewhere in around there, because I actually saw that tour. It's the only time I've ever seen the police. But I went because there was so much advertisement on MTV for that tour. So they were kind of sponsoring it. Every Time You Go Away by Paul Young. I listened to the Daryl Hall and John Oates version, but I prefer the Paul Young version. I, I really, really like this song. And again, a lot of Brits are occupying the top 10 spaces, right? And then Tears for Fear, Shout. Didn't like it at the time, grew to love it real quick. So Shout, uh, Everyone Wants to Rule the World. Songs from the Big Tier had a lot of great tunes on it. And it's not their only hits. They released uh, Sowing the Seeds of Love on the following album. Now, granted, the following album was following up a major album so it didn't have as much success as songs from the big chair but they still had some success with that follow-up album so my favorite out of this 10 it's tough because i like a lot of these songs kind of the same i probably shout by tears And if I had to have like a follow-up song to that, it would probably be the Every Time You Go Away, Paul Young. So really, one and two is they got it right. <laughs> I hung up on you after you said Tears for Fears. <laughs> Should have hung up on me when you started singing that Who Holding Donna Now song. <laughs> That's a great song. Right? Great. It wasn't great before you sang it. It sure as hell ain't great after you sang it.
1985. There's some stuff going on. So again, there's no football because it's August. There's no basketball because it's August. But Major League Baseball is actually playing. Tom Seaver just got his 300th win. Rod Carew just got his 3,000 hit. And Kansas City Royals are about to win the series in a few months. So the number one movie in the U.S. on August 1st, 85 is Weird Science, followed by National Lampoon's European Vacation. Both great movies. Kelly LeBrock, right, in Weird Science? Yes. Yes, Kelly, 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 Kelly. (laughs) The number one TV show was The Cosby Show. I don't know how people feel about The Cosby Show nowadays. Back then, I watched it a lot. You're not going to be able to erase me watching it. I don't watch it now, but I did watch it then. Did you watch that show at all? I did, yes. Number one album was Songs from the Big Chair by Tears for Fears. It was a number one album for a long time, actually. (laughs) So it took a while to get there, and then it stayed. So let's connect this thing to Kiss, because 85 is a big year, baby. It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So August 1st, 85, historic moment. Kiss is in the middle of recording Asylum. And by October-ish, MTV has paid for the first month of exclusive rights to play Tears Are Falling. So we go from 81, where they refused to give the videos away for free and ended up doing it anyway six months later, to MTV coming to them and buying exclusive rights for a month. Asylum's super special to me because it was the first tour I saw with Kiss. Wasp opened. In turn, Asylum is my favorite album. Always has been. I realized I am one of few. It is what it is. Here is one of the deeper tracks that we normally don't hear. Gene singing, Secretly Cruel.
I said it before, I'll say it again. I like Asylum, not my favorite Kiss album, but I do like Asylum. And Secretly Cruel has that very old school feel to it. In fact, that lead off lick reminds me a lot of Mr. Speed. So it's a great tune. Everybody that doesn't like the multicolored outfits and the uh, B. Arthur look, well, get over it. Yeah! So interesting second episode. It's obvious that you go forward four years and just looking at the charts. You got Bon Jovi, you got Y&T, you got Rat, you got Motley Crue, you got Night Ranger. Our melodic rock is coming to hit the charts because they're making videos and people are attaching faces to names and it is a visual art in some of the music that we listen to. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Now, later, MTV is continuing to affect pop culture. So they go to Yo MTV Raps and Club MTV and 120 Minutes and The Real World, which was the first uh, reality TV show. And so it's just like anything else. You start out, you're thinking about one thing. You get to a place, you start making money, it becomes something else slowly. Then you want to sustain the money because now there's a bunch of investors and you're not the only one with their neck on the line. There's a lot of people with their necks on the line. And then you get to a point where, well, you're owned by a bunch of people. So that means it can sell off to anybody they want to. And maybe the people that owned you don't want you anymore and you get sold off somebody else. And then the flavors of society change and either you change with pop culture or you create the change in pop culture. It's very possible. I believe it to be true that MTV created grunge they created basically hair metal. They basically created grunge, right? So whether you believe it or not, to me, it had a huge influence on it. But I want to get your thoughts on all that stuff. The trends that MTV started, because now you've got the music and the visual to go along with the music. So you saw in 81, it was just the beginning of everything that was happening. But with this four years in between, the Madonna's, the Pat Benatars. I mean, can you honestly say that you didn't know people in your school that were dressed like Pat Benatar or Madonna? I did. Tons of them. In my high school, by the time 85, 86 is rolling around, you got a bunch of kids in concert t-shirts because rock was huge here in San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. All the girls are dressed in either leather or lace. They either look like basically a Pat Benatar hooker style girl, or they've gone total Madonna with five different shirts on all one way or another. Three of them are fishnet. One of them's bright pink. The hair is bright orange. Like, yeah. All the, all, the all the rubber bracelets, like tons yeah. of rubber bracelets and stuff. And so, uh, the next four years. So after 85, those next four years that are coming up will be the dawn and bringing in all the hair bands, all the hair metal, all the poisons and the glam metal and all these pretty boys that were made for MTV. You see the cusp of it starting here with the smoking in the boys room and things like that. The Bon Jovi 7,800 degrees, but next four years will be all about that stuff for sure. And thanks to Home Sweet Home, every one of those guys have to have a ballad. Otherwise, they can't have a platinum record. So you heard all the ballads. And every band we talk about that didn't have a platinum record in the mid-'80s did not have a ballad or didn't have a ballad that charted. It was Release the Rocker. So release the first single, it's a rocker. Let it see how it performs, if it has good staying power. And then the follow-up single is going to be the ballad, right? The power ballad. Yeah, and it really didn't matter if you had the ability to sing the ballad or not, as long as you could sell it, mm -hmm. right? Like Brett Michael, yeah, I guess he can sell it for what he's doing. It doesn't hit my ear right. But I can't say Kloss 
is exactly Pavarotti when he's singing Still Loving You. Yeah. But you know what? He's hitting some notes and he's putting some feeling in it and he can sell it. So what's the difference? Yeah. And remember, we were talking about Tears for Fear and how songs from the big chair did so well. Also, I guess it was last episode we were talking about Real Genius, the Val Kilmer flick. Oh, no, that was this episode, too, because it's Summertime Girls. Everyone Wants to Rule the World was a featured song in that movie. Remember that? Oh, you know what? I, I'm always looking forward to hearing Summertime Girls. I've seen that movie probably 50 times. I've got to watch it again. I don't remember that. It was like really featured, like either at the end of the movie or something, but it, it had a very prime location in that movie and prominently featured. Everyone Wants to Rule the World, I remember specifically from that movie. So that I'm sure didn't, didn't hurt things either because everybody wanted a piece of them at this point. And if you remember, this started Get On a Movie Soundtrack right? Because a lot of rock bands were starting to get on movie soundtracks and all the horror movies and all that kind of stuff. And then movies started showing up in the videos and though, you know, the visual piece of it matters to me. I'm glad I wasn't a teenager in the seventies, to be honest with you. Cause today I don't really connect with that music because it's just a bunch of faceless stuff. And it seems like everybody's kind of stuck in a genre. So if you were into music in the sixties and seventies, you're kind of stuck in this genre. If you were born in the nineties, kind of stuck in this like grunge alternative music. But if you were born in the eighties, it feels like you have a more breadth of assortment because of all the pop stuff you had to hear while you were waiting for your stuff. Yeah. The problem is is that all the, uh, uh, social media and all the concert promoters and everything. They keep posting pictures of Vince Neil when he was skinny and small back in those days. And we all know that that's not the case right now. <laughs> so unfortunately, a lot of people have those visions caught in their head of 1981, 1985, whenever these people were all young and thin and had hair and looked cool. And now it's 2021 and they're still out there uh, touring, but they don't look the same. (laughs) You got to get past that. And I understand, you know, for the artist, from the artist's point of view, it's like, is it really fair? Like everybody else gets to grow old, but I don't get to grow old. Yeah. And I don't think that's what we're saying. At least that's not what I'm saying. And I, I'm sure that's not what you're saying. It's you do have to age well. You do have to keep yourself together because it really isn't our fault that you became popular in the visual medium, right? Like the Richard Marks of the world, the Steve Perry's of the world, the, the George Clooney's of the world, hell, the Clint Eastwood's of the world. These guys have aged really well. Right. They look great. Yeah. They're older. De Niro, Pacino, right. They understand. But if you're going to completely let yourself go, people are not going to forgive that. I'm more of the mind of, look, I'm willing to accept my rockers today without hair, uh, with a few extra pounds. It's kind of expected. I don't need somebody to let themselves go. But the problem is, and I think what MTV had a negative effect on is that they live the original spirits of these people that we cherished back in 1981 or 85 or whatever it is live in our minds and the minds of the fans, that image lives there. You know what I mean? So it's hard because there's that sentimental value, that nostalgia that we all are tied to because we tie it to a period of our lives and we'll never get that back. Right now, when we go and see these people, they don't look like they did in that video. And it's understandable and it can't be helped. I mean, it is what it is, but I think that's the negative effect that the video revolution had. 
Yeah, and I think what happens is when we go to Monsters of Rock and things like that, and you see a Y&T up there, you know, they're not exactly spring chickens either, right? The Manichetti is coming close to 70 years old. He still got himself together, still sounds good, still plays great. So you're able to reminisce of the olden days, because that's what you're really there for, right? Just like you said, is you're connecting the emotions of what you felt when you first saw him and you got all your friends there and everybody's kind of into it. But if like Manichetti sounded terrible, that would take away from what we're trying to get out of it, yeah. right? So you still got to represent it well. Yeah, 100%. I don't need you to look like you looked in 1985. That's not at all what I'm saying. I need you to at least look like you give a shit, but I need you to sound decent. And that doesn't mean that if you were a singer, I need you to hit every note that you hit when you were 23 years old. That's not what I'm saying. But I need you to give a shit. And I can tell whether you give a shit or not. And most of the fans, whether they want to admit it or not, can tell whether you give a shit or not. And so that's all I need to have from my artist when they're 70 years old. That's, that's all I really care about. So great episode. Thank you for listening. Thanks for the feedback. Yes, we wish everybody could age like the sexy Kip Winger, but not everybody can age that well. No, Sonny tries to, but unfortunately he looks like that uh, dude that dances in the Six Flags videos instead. You know the one I'm talking about. <laughs> anyway, thanks for joining us. It's been a ball. Hopefully you've enjoyed the last couple of weeks. We'll get back to our normal, regular episodes next week. We appreciate each and every one of you guys. See ya. Later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.